Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello and welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival 2023. My name is Sheila Ngotfam and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this conversation with Andre Dao and Wing Fang Wei Mai. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to the elders past and present and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. As newcomers to this land with roots in Vietnam, we hope to share with both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians our stories of alienation, struggle, hope and belonging. So introductions, um, I have Andre Dow here and he's a Melbourne-based writer, editor and artist. His debut novel, Anam, won the 2021 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. His writing has appeared in a wide range of publications, um, too many to list right now, I think. And Anam was just published in Australia this month by Penguin Random House, and it will come out in August 2023 in the UK. And Wing Fangwei Mai, she's a Vietnamese author whose um, first novel, The Mountain Sing, um, the first novel in English, I should say, was an international bestseller, and you may have already um, heard of it. It was a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, winner of the Book Browse Best Debut Award, the Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Literary Award and the Lannan Literary Award Fellowship. She's the author of 12 books in Vietnamese and English, and her writing has been translated into 20 languages and has appeared in major publications like the New York Times. So Dust Child is her most recent um, follow-up. And I'm, my, I'm Sheila Ngot Farm, as I said earlier. I'm a writer, editor and curator working across media, public health and the arts. Um, I've you know, done a lot of work um, around Vietnamese diaspora writing, and so I feel like I'm perfectly placed to have this conversation, and I couldn't imagine two other authors I'd rather be talking today, today about their books and about um, Vietnamese diasporic literature. So I guess to kick things off, I might get Andre to um, start things by reading from the start of his novel, um, and then we'll take it from there. Thanks, Sheila. Um, so this is the beginning of my novel, Anam. See, if I think of my grandparents now, after all this writing and reading and imagining and remembering, two couples are thrown into relief. Their outlines like clay figures in the mud where so many others are are failing to resist the ebb and flow of forgetting. Both couples are elderly and Vietnamese and live in an apartment outside Paris with their eldest daughter. Both couples have been together 60 years through two wars and many separations. Both speak to me in a mix of Vietnamese, French, and a smattering of English. But one couple speak to me of suffering, loss, exile, forgiveness, and redemption, and the other couple do not. Instead, they are always laughing with each other and at me, pinching, touching, feeding me, looking at me, shaking their heads and chastising me, praising my plumpness and my height and my grades. This second couple is harder to write, but easier to remember. I think of them as saying to me over and over again, we want you to be. And also, why don't you marry that poor girl and when are you taking the bar exam and always, eat up, why aren't you eating? Finished already? I've been trying for a long time to bring the two couples together in my mind, or at least to avoid having to choose between them. And just now, thinking of them, I remember the visit that my grandmother and I paid to my grandfather one late afternoon when he was on his deathbed. He was in a clean beige room in a public hospital, a train and a bus away from their daughter's apartment. He patted the side of the bed for my grandmother to come sit by him and I asked them once again about the story, expecting them to tell me the usual things. Instead, they chose to sing, something they had never done before 
I would never do again. An old jazz standard. I remember you. But even as I was fumbling to record them on my phone, they were already finishing, lapsing into wrinkled smiles, so that the recording I have is nothing but silence. Thanks, Andrew, for your beautiful reading. Thank you so much for being here. I expected that no one would turn up at our event <laughs> and look at you. You fill the room with your warmth and your kindness. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate being here with Sheila. She has done so much to prepare for this panel and she has done so much for other authors as well. So thank you. And I'm so grateful to be here at the Sydney Writers' Festival. Um, I came here, um, I first came to Australia when I was 19 years old, barely able to speak English. Um, at that time, I, luckily I won a, uh, an Aussie scholarship to study in Australia for four years. And this is an example how education can change people's life. You know, investment in education is the best type of investment. And I wouldn't have been able to become a writer in English without Australia. So thank you so much. Um, I mean, this journey has been so incredible. And this book is a result of my seven years of research um, into the experiences of Amerasian children, you know, children born and, and most of them were abandoned during the Vietnam War. So when I researched for this novel, I was shocked to, to know that the tens of thousands of them were born and many of them were abandoned. And I've been working with Amerasians in Vietnam. Many of them are illiterate and they have been subject to uh, discrimination and racism. So this book is my call for humans to love humans more. During the Vietnam War, tens of thousands of children were born into relationships between American soldiers and Vietnamese women. Terrible circumstances separated most of these American children from their fathers and later their mothers. Many have not found each other again. Four Americans and their family members who shared with me their personal stories and who inspired me with their courage. For the millions of men, women, and children who were pulled into the vortex of the Vietnam War. For anyone whose lives has been touched by violence, may our world see more compassion and peace. Chapter 1, Child of the Enemy, Ho Chi Minh City, 2016. Life is a boat, Sister Nhã, the Catholic nun who had raised Phong once told him. One, when you depart from your first anchor, your mother's womb, you will be pulled away by unexpected currents. If you can fill your boat with enough hope, enough self-belief, enough compassion, and enough curiosity, you will be ready to weather all the storms of life. As Fong sat waiting at the American consulate, he felt the weight of hope in his hands, his visa application, and those of his wife Bing, his son Tai, and his daughter Ziem. Around him, many Vietnamese were waiting in chairs or in lines for their turn to speak with one of the visa officers who sat at counters behind glass, glass windows. Some Vietnamese cast curious glances towards Phong and he felt the heat of their eyes. Half-breed, he imagined them whispering, 
throughout his life, he had been called the dust of life, bastard, black American imperialist, child of the enemy. These labels had been flung at him when he was younger with such ferocity that they had burrowed deep within him, refusing to let go. When he was a child living in the Lâm Đồng economic zone with Sister Nhã, he once filled a large bucket with water and soap, climbed inside and rubbed his skin with a spout gourd to scrub the black of it. He was bleeding by the time Sister Nhã found him. He wondered why he had to be born an Amerasian. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for reading and um, giving the context for Dust Child too. Um, and in fact, um, and I might go back to Andre now, so maybe you can give a bit of context for your book as well before we you know, start discussing you know, how your novels intersect in a way too, because essentially the war is a focus for both of them, but you've treated it in different ways. So um, I think you're reading, Andre, I mean, it's, you start with your grandparents living in France. I mean, in, in the beginning of this book, you see someone who's trying to leave Vietnam at the visa office, but in your um, introduction, they've left, they long left Vietnam. So I wonder if you could tell, um, just so everyone um, has a sense of your book as well. Like, so what is your book about? Yeah, so my my novel is uh, a fictionalization of my my own family history, and it and it did begin as a as a memoir, as a sort of more straightforward nonfiction project, um, and was really sparked off by, I suppose, a discovery I made uh, as a teenager, um, looking through drawers that you shouldn't be looking through uh, at home, and f coming across this uh, Amnesty International newsletter that had a photo of my grandfather on the front. And it um, said that he was a prisoner of conscience um, uh, held by the communist government in this um, prison called Chihua, and I, that's all I knew. Um, so that set off, you know, a long journey of research and um, and, and interviews with my my family, and um, through many sort of failed drafts of, of writing that story, um, I came to realise that I had to tell it differently, and I had to do something different with it and, and not try and claim the, the, the kind of claim to truth that a memoir or a biography has. Um, and so the, the book that, I, that I, um, I've ended up with, Anam, is um, I think truer for the fact that it is a fictionalization, um, but maybe we can get into, into that later on as well. Yeah, so with Andre's novel, I mean, it's a novel, but it's some um, very, uh, I guess, atypical structure um, and form as well because it's a mixture of memoir, I would say reportage as well, um, imagined, um, you know, a fiction. So, but I guess the form of it that it takes is is a novel um, and it's based partly on your own life as well. And I guess it was because I do know you a little bit and, you know, we've, I guess we've met each other many years ago, I did recognise, you know, some of the things you were alluding to um, of your own life. Um, and I guess and it contrasts um, very much with like Dust Child, which in fact is based on your PhD research, but then you went for a very kind of narrative fictional form. So I, I guess then maybe we could just talk about like a bit more about the, the idea of form. Maybe Wenmai, you can tell us like, why did you choose th this um, uh, structure, which is essentially like three interwoven narratives? Um, how did you settle on that rather than just saying like one main character, you, you needed three? Mm -hmm. 
First of all, I need to say I love um, Anna uh, Andrew's novel. He's a poet. You know, his language is so poetic. When when I read it, I you know I spent too much time on it because I read and reread and reread because it's so beautiful. And Andrea told me he spent 12 years on it, and I spent seven years on this novel. So I know like we craft each each sentence, each word with a purpose. So. Um, you know, um, that child is told in the voices of, um, of, of different characters because the Vietnamese history is so complicated. And my role as a writer is to, is to bring into the narrative different points of view. So in this novel, you will meet from a black Amerasian character. I, I want to, to know, talk about racism and the things that he has gone through. And, you know, I, I, I want to present this Amerasian character as a survivor and now not a victim. So he is, uh, you know, even though he's, he was abandoned at birth and he grows up uh, uh, without his parents and he, he was homeless for many years and that's why he was called the dust of life. In Vietnamese, we have this term, bụi đời, the dust of life for homeless people. So Phong, uh, Phong um, you know, even though his name means Nguyễn Tấn Phong, that means strength from thousands of gusts of wind. But he has this beautiful name, but people reduce him to the dust of life, and that's really painful. But he regains his humanity through the love he has for his family and those around him, and also he finds the pathway to joy, you know, by, by playing musical instruments. So one of my goals as a writer is to introduce Vietnam beyond the war, so I bring a lot of poetry, music into, into this book as well. So, uh, so I talk about Cai Luong music, and if you behave really well today, I might sing you a Kai Lung song <laughs> later on. Um, so that's my first character, and then you know I ha I have two sisters in the novel. Some sometimes when something is missing in your life, you make it up in fiction, right? I don't have a sister in real life, so I need to have a sister in my novel. So I have two sisters, Chang and Quing, in my novel, and you know I want to use them to fight against the representation of Vietnamese women in Hollywood movies. If you have watched Hollywood movies about Vietnam like Rambo, you see that a lot of these American men rescue Vietnamese women because like we are absent of agencies, absent of trauma, and we need to be rescued by white men. And here I am to show that we women can rescue men. <laughs> So my, my bad girl's character in the novels, they, they, they realize the trauma of the American soldiers they interact with, and they try to, to save the American soldiers. And my, my character, Chang, even though she's a bad girl, she's a poet. She remembers the tale of Gil, an epic Vietnamese you know, novel with more than 3,200 uh, verses by heart, and she tries to save her American boyfriend with this novel. And also, like, throughout you know, our history, our voices have been taken away from us by many other people because we have been colonized for so many centuries. And you know, I mean, if you look at Vietnamese, if you look at literature about Vietnam in English, there have been so many novels written by white men who assume the voices of Vietnamese women. So then I told myself, why don't I do that to them? <laughs> why don't I write in the voice of an American man to see how it feels? 
and it felt empowering. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of fun writing, you know, against ra about racism on Vietnamese women, on, on Vietnamese people from the point of American soldiers. So I had a lot of fun. But, you know, so I have in this novel the voice of Dan, a traumatized uh, American veteran who was a former helicopter pilot. So he comes back to Vietnam in today's time and without his wife knowing, he has a child and he needs to look for his child. I couldn't have been able to write in the voice of, in the voice of Dan without my years uh, experiences working with American veterans. I have translated a lot of literature written by veterans who fought in Vietnam. I have accompanied them uh, to former battlefields in their conversations with former enemies. So I have fictionalized a lot of um, real-life stories I witnessed into this novel. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that's a very good, um, <laughs> very passionate um, defense of the, the three perspectives you took. I mean, I felt that your um, rendering of the American soldier was in incredibly compassionate. Like, it was hard for me to reconcile that, you know, this, you know, but I, I guess at the time you, I, I guess in the book it's explained, he's a very young man who's conscripted, goes off to war, but somehow also loves poetry and seems like a thoughtful person as well, which I, you know, is probably true that that's possible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I really felt by the end, I, I felt like, yeah, I need to have more compassion for the American soldiers as well, actually. That's what um, the effect of reading your book was. Um, and I, I'd like to, you know, tie this, um, what you just said uh, to Andre's book about all the different characters that populate your story. I mean, I think some of my favourite characters in your book were probably the women as well. Um, and one of my favourite moments in the book um, is when the, the unnamed protagonist, um, you know, his, his partner, she points out that, you know, it's not just about the grandfather who had been a political prisoner, what about the wife who was the one, you know, raising the children without, without him present? And so I wonder if you can then introduce some of those characters and what you were thinking, because, you know, there's the grandfather um, figure, who, which is based on your own grandfather who was a political um, prisoner, then, then there's the grandmother who introduced us in that reading. They're, you know, the couple. Um, and, and then a big chunk of the book is really devoted to her perspective and her life. And so I wondered, you know, maybe you could tell us a bit more about, you know, how you thought about, just like um, what Wemai was talking about, you know, what they each represented. What did you come to think of um, those kind of main characters in your story? What did they represent for you? Sure. Um, I might respond first to um, something that you brought up, Wemai, because it was... Um, I mean, so nice to hear that um, the motivation behind, one of the motivations behind um, your characters being this kind of reclaiming of that agency and responding to, you know, white male writers writing in these voices. Because actually there was um, a, a line in a review uh, of one of those books by those um, white American writers, um, which a glowing review in the New York Review of Books that says something like, you know, this author has achieved his daring project of humanizing the Vietnamese. Yeah, um, and like, I was we, like we were not humans, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, which is, yeah, a, a sort of a line that I, um, I kind of riff off in, in my novel. Um, because, you know, seeing that was, um, it, um, it sparked something for me. Um, yeah, I suppose in, in relation to the, um, that moment in which the narrator's partner set, pulls him up on his, um, uh, what she calls his sort of, you know, patriarchal tendencies, uh, is really important, um, not only because it's this pivot point in which we then move from these lengthy sections about the narrator's grandfather and then he starts to try and think about his grandmother, um, 
but I think that moment is one of the um, the points at which I, I really tried to show that um, that each of us, uh, you know, whether we're writers or not, none of us are sort of self-forming, and you know, we we form ourselves and our thoughts in relation to others. It's always in conversation. That's what you know, really, um, kind of a key. Um, point for me and so I think um, that moment in the novel you know you've had um, an entire sort of first section in which the narrator is stuck in the past he's stuck um, you know with the family trauma he's stuck with like the weight of history and it's so complex and he's trying to you know pull out all these threads he's trying to make sense of this grandfather who spent 10 years in prison without being charged or tried you know and it's all too wasty and he can't get out from under that um, and so, of course, it's the hubris of thinking that you can get out of it yourself. You can't. You have to be in conversation with other people. And that's, you know, in conversation with his partner, but it's also in conversation with other writers and other th thinkers. And so that's how, the, the, for me, the novel moves out of that rut, is that the narrator starts to think in conversation in relation to, to other people. Um, as for who... Um, who those characters are, I guess, so that, yeah, there is, I mean, there's this narrator who is a young Vietnamese-Australian um, sort of failed writer, goes off to Cambridge to study um, to study law. Uh, he, he moves over there with his partner and their baby daughter. Um, and, you know, I guess that's the, the present-day action of the novel, such as it is, um, happens in, in Cambridge. And... In, in some ways, the I guess the through line of the novel for me is this narrator learning to come back from the, all that weighty history and sort of thinking about the partner and daughter sort of in front of him. And that, again, is to come back to that point of, you know, we, we're not sort of self-forming. Um, we're always in conversation with others. And whether that's very theoretical, philosophical conversation with writer's past or in attempts at conversation with this sort of baby daughter who can't really, you know, um, quite articulate herself yet. But that's how um, I think it's him coming back to that family unit that is the key. Mm. And in fact, um, I really felt reading your book that for the protagonist, it's really important that there is a child. And in fact, and then obviously Dust Child, that's also motivated by the search for a child as well. And so I think, you know, it made me think that you know, we're, we're talking about kind of an intergenerational, these are intergenerational stories. Like yours is, um, Andre's is very explicitly about that because it's about the grandfather and about the parents um, and then the reckoning of, you know, and then now the, the main protagonist, um, you know, he's got a child as well and thinking about what, you know, how does that get transmuted over the generations, these stories and this trauma. And in Dust Child as well, um, the idea of children is pivotal. I mean, essentially... That's what the, his whole narrative is about. These, like you said, the the boydai, like the these um, Amerasian children, um, who are born out of the liaison between American GIs um, and Vietnamese women. Um, and so I wondered, yeah, women, maybe you can talk a bit more about this thing about children, because through all the the three characters, this idea, and even with Dan's story, there's like the there's like a phantom of a child because they didn't have children themselves with his partner. Um, but yet then all these decades later, it seems like it's like this unresolved thing about, you know, the mystery of the child. So how did you kind of think about that, you know, structuring the, the book around this idea of the search for the child? Like, it's, I guess it's based on, you know, real stories of soldiers that you've met and encountered over time. 
Um, yeah. Um, thank you. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, both of my books show the impact of wars beyond death and injuries. Actually, children who are, you know, there are statistics that say a lot of children die because of wars and also they grow up with this really uh, terrible trauma and it's, it's, you know, it's carried from one generation to the next. So, um, you know, the, the seed for Das Chai was planted when I was, a, you know, a child growing up in Vietnam and in my neighborhood, I saw Amerasian children being discriminated. And in 2015, I, I read a story that moved me really deeply. It was um, the story on the BBC about an American veteran returning to Vietnam with an al album of old photos walking the street of Saigon. He was showing the photos to Vietnamese whom he met on the street and he asked them, do you know this woman? She was pregnant with my child when I left her. Um, I need to find her to meet my responsibilities as a father. So I read his story, and his name is Jerry Quinn, and you can still find his story on the internet. And I was so moved, so I, re I reached out to an organization that helps veterans find their kids, and I interviewed uh, some of them. And one, one of the veterans told me that after Vietnam, he was so traumatized that he, returned, that he was homeless for 40 years. He was unable to find a job when he returned to the US. And he said during the winter nights when he tried to sleep, they would be, he would hear his former girlfriend calling him, Alan, this is your child. And she was running after him with a pregnant stomach. And he thought about him saying, no, this is not my child, and him walking away. So he told me that after 40 years when Veterans Affairs admitted that he was mentally disabled and he was able to, do, um, to go into a home, he did a DNA test uh, to be able to find his child, and he couldn't. So he told me his story. So he asked, can you help me? So I, I wanted to write about him. And then I interviewed all the veterans whose stories were just so incredible, but they had been on on international media, on Vietnamese media, on social media. They had been searching for family members for years, so I wanted this to be a human story. So I asked one of them, why don't you write a letter to the woman whom you walked away from and tell her why you have been looking for her for years now, spending your life saving to go back to Vietnam to look for her. And he wrote a very, very moving letter, which I published translated into Vietnamese and published on a national newspaper of Vietnam called Tuổi Trẻ. And this is his, his letter that I translated. And I, trans, and, and I published the, the stories together with the pictures. The, the veterans had, told, had sent me the old pictures of themselves and the women. And I thought, you know, you know what's the chance of, of finding someone because more than 46 years had passed? But I received so many emails of people saying they are related to the veterans, but you know, no one could give me a concrete lead until one day there was um, a person who, who wrote me an email and who gave me two phone numbers. And he said, Quay Mai, I don't even own an email account. I went to an internet cafe and asked someone to set this up for me so I can send you a message. Please call me. I might know someone who might know someone who might know <laughs> one of the veterans. Okay, so it was a fixed line number, so I called him. I was in Belgium at that time. It was so expensive to call. And I was praying, please tell me you know somebody in my article. 
She, she talked with me, you know, for how long? 15 minutes. She asked me countless questions about myself, the work that I did. Before she took a deep breath, she paused, and then she told me, I have, I have not told you, told anyone this secret for more than 40 years. I was one pregnant with the child of an American soldier, and he left me, and I gave birth and had to give away the child away because I could not afford to raise the child. And she said, Mai, I'm one of the women in your article. And she's this beautiful, beautiful woman. Um, and you know, like during the war, she worked as a bar girl that served, Amer uh, she worked as a bar girl and she worked in bars that served American, American soldiers. And um, you know, and it was just so incredible. So I connected, you know, I, she still had the same photo. And so I connected them. So the, the veteran went back to Vietnam to meet her and they re reunited after 46 years. And uh, it was a miracle, but they haven't found their child yet. So both of them have done DNA testing, uh, but um, they haven't found their child yet. And recently I helped unite somebody who found her, her father after 51 years. And you know, the father who's in Ohio doesn't know, did not know he had a child. He had gone to Vietnam as, as a young man. He had some casual relation and went back and was traumatized and uh, tried to forget about Vietnam. And suddenly one day, his nephew went for a DNA test and found a relative in Vietnam. And first he denied it. Do you know why? Because he was married. He was married when he went to Vietnam. So, you know, so there's so many complex stories com coming out of the admiration situation, many layers of trauma and layers of ethical complexity that I documented in this book. And it's, it's about real life. So many admirations have read my novel and reached out to me and said, oh, I see myself in your book. And it's just so incredible. Mm. I mean, hearing you speak, I think... Um I can't believe it's taken this long for a, a novel like yours to be written, actually, since, you know, the war finished in 1975 and I guess the American soldiers left even, you know, a few years before that. Um, but there have been other accounts written, I think, like memoirs and that from Amerasians. Um, but I think that this is still like a great unresolved kind of um, legacy of the war, I think, which you're, you know, very clear about in your book. Um, and it makes me think like... You know, I, I guess, and it's not just about the war, it, it sort of predates that. And in fact, I'd, I'd like to point to your other book too. So I don't know if people have read The Mountain Sing. Um, but that book is it's a good companion book because it actually focuses on an earlier part of Vietnamese history. And I think, and then that, I think that's where actually Andre's book and um, uh, like Mountain Sing, they kind of dovetail a bit more because it then focuses kind of on the, the pre-war colonization period under French colonization as well. And in fact, the, the thing that's really heart-wrenching about um, the Mountain Sing, it's, it also involves um, a mother trying to save her children too, um, and th that becomes a big part of the story. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's an incredibly like emotional book I found as, as maybe now I have children myself. So, you know, the thought of abandoning your children in a village to come back and try and save them there, like it's, it's kind of, you know, blows my mind. Um, and hearing about these American soldiers and these Vietnamese women too who abandoned their children for lots of 
practical reasons, and it's a very difficult time, I think. Um, yeah, it seems like there's still a lot of sadness about it. And actually, if you're on Facebook, you often, I often see these posts, people looking for family that were adopted overseas, either, you know, um, mixed race or otherwise, maybe, you know, children who are fully Vietnamese. Um, yeah, so it's very painful. And, but I guess one thing about your book, though, and maybe the reason why Polly, it hasn't been written this way, is that we needed someone like you to come along because people like Andre and I, we grew up in Australia. We're very distant from Vietnam. You know, like we, it's a big part of, it's a, it's a huge burden on us just like, I think, and that's why I relate very much to Andre's book. I feel like it has a, it's very, his family story is so different to mine, but there's a real parallel and that kind of struggle with that weight of history. But then I think, Wema, you're actually from Vietnam. You know, you, you grew up there and, and she has a very um, unique perspective too because you're actually very, um, because your family's from the North and then you grew up in the South. And so you, you, you can see, all sides of the story at the same time, I feel. I think that's your great skill um, in your novels in English. Um, but I wondered then, like, with the, is this the role of, but now you're part of the diaspora too. You've left Vietnam. You live in other countries. Like, um, what is the role of diaspora writers in trying to write about the true history of Vietnam? Because, and I guess this is where I want to touch on the political sensitivities, because in Vietnam itself, these kinds of books... Um, aren't exactly written, I think. I think that's probably fair to say because there are a lot of political sensitivities. And I think reading your books, I, I feel like you're, very, you're both very conscious of, of this as well and the role of writers outside of Vietnam in trying to assert the, the truth of this history and these, and these real stories. Like, how do you manage, um, you know, that, that kind of, those political sensitivities? I might start with you, Andre, and then maybe you can hear from, where am I too? Um, I mean, I think I manage them fairly poorly. Um, <laughs> I should also say, I mean, I, I'm a very bad Vietnamese son, right? Like I'm not, my, my Vietnamese is very poor. My understanding of Vietnamese culture is very poor. Um, and it's precisely because I'm such a bad Vietnamese son is why I've been able to succeed, I think, in certain areas here in Australia. Um, and I think those two things are tied for a lot of um, diaspora kids. So, um, which is why it's a real re revelation for me to read your novels, Guimai, because um, in the process of writing Anam, I've been trying to learn about Vietnamese culture and Vietnamese history, but um, in many ways, you know, even though I said before, you know, I was responding to this review in the New York Review of Books, but in many ways, I am not, not that dissimilar from that person because I'm, I very much am writing about things that I don't understand and experiences I don't understand. So the question for me, became how do I do that ethically, right? Um, and how do I do that ethically without just relying on like the way I look and then, because I know that mostly I could probably write um, a fairly straight version of this story and most people I think in Australia will go, oh yeah, he's got a Vietnamese name and yeah, so we won't really question how he comes to know this or how he comes to imagine what it's like to be, um, to live through the famine um, uh, in 1945, for instance. But of course, I, I, you know, for me anyway, um, and this is, you know, speaks to my, perhaps my own failings of imagination and failings of, you know, um, writerly skill. But to be able to imagine what it's like to um, to not be able to feed all your children right during the famine, or to um, particularly to understand what my grandfather meant when he said to me, um, you know. After 10 years in this prison, um, I was released and then I forgave my captors. And you know, I, I, I could not understand that. I could not imagine 
truly imagine what he meant, apart from, you know, I could only really understand that on a very surface sort of level as some kind of pat phrase, but if I thought, actually, he really means that, how could he mean that? How could he possibly forgive them? He, they, they, they've destroyed everything that he worked for in his life. You know, they've taken his country away from him, they've taken his family away from him. How, how could he forgive them? Um, and so it was the limits of my understanding. Um, and I guess there was a, I think earlier on you had a question about form and the reason my novel takes the form it does is because I keep hitting the limits of my own imagination, the limits of my own writing um, to be able to tell these stories. Um, and so the method that I hit upon was I have to try and find other ways, other voices. Um, and so that might be, so at points I turn to the tale of guilt, you know, the, the, the Shakespeare of Vietnam. Okay. If I, if I read this and I, and I crib some lines from this epic poem, will that help me understand my grandparents? One side of them, yes, but you know, not fully. And then well, what happens if I take Virginia Woolf's The Waves and instead of it being a set of upper-class English people, it's a Vietnamese family in a small apartment in, in France. And you know, can a, you know, a Vietnamese refugee family speak in the same kind of heightened aesthetic tones as Wolf's characters? Yes, they can, but then what happened, you know, that's one side of them, but it's not the whole story either. So I kept moving through different styles, forms, voices, because of, yeah, I, this profound sense of my own inadequacy in, in response to kind of these stories. I'm really related to that sense of inadequacy, <laughs> yeah. so I have to say as a reader. Um, but yeah, but I think, um, yeah, and no, thank you for explaining all that. Yeah, I, and I did, and I mean, for me, that's part of the, um, the way the na your narrative is propulsory, but that struggle, I felt like I personally did identify the struggle and really wanted the writer to succeed in the end and trying to work out a way through all these complexities. Um, but I didn't feel the same way with your books. In that way, they felt, I guess I'd say, they felt more effortless to read, in a sense, um, because in that way, there's less of a struggle for you. I mean, I think the struggle was that you've just become, like you said before, you came to Australia at 19, you didn't know a word of English, and now you're writing books in English. I mean, I think that's incredible in itself that you're writing in your second language. Um, but, yeah, but what, um, going back to the thing, if you don't mind kind of exploring those political sensitivities, I really felt that with both of your books, you're very conscious of the, the way these stories are told in Vietnam, and, but you're very clear about asserting, like, facts, um, and you know, but in, in, the, in, the, in the context of a story, so how do you feel about, yeah, what you're doing, what you're trying to achieve with these kinds of stories, and you know, working against like you know, I guess official accounts of the war. Hmm. First of all, I need to respond to Andrea's comment because I don't agree with him on one thing. Sorry, hmm. I I don't agree with you when you said you are a bad Vietnamese son. <laughs> you are a brilliant Vietnamese son because you documented your family history in this brilliant book, right? You should be very proud, and I know that your family is proud of you because it's so difficult to, to write about our family history. There is, because, you know, any Vietnamese family's history can be written into an epic novel because we have been, we have gone through so much, you know, Vietnam's were, uh, colonized by so many empires, and we were dispersed from all to all over uh, to all corners of the world because of, of of many events that happened in Vietnam. So, yeah. 
So sorry, I have to disagree <laughs> with you on that. Um, but I mean, you know, one of the reasons I had to write in English is to dis have this freedom of expression. If I were to write in Vietnamese, I would not have written the stories the way I were able to write. Um, so, um, you know, um, in the mountain scene, I talk about the impact of censorship in Vietnam and the fact that many Vietnamese uh, writers were in trouble. And there's this uh, young character, Hương, who wanted to be a writer, but it took years for her to, to make up her mind. And then one day, because she saw so many things happening to her family, then she told herself, I need to write these things. These are the stories that found me, that need me to tell them. And then she told herself, if I were to become a writer, I would not bend my pen to, to please the eyes and ears of those in power. And this is the mission of, one of my missions as a writer. Because I, I mean, you know, I want to write from the human point of view. I want to write for a better Vietnam. I want to write for a better world where we can learn from the mistakes of our past. And you know, these are real life human stories that I have documented throughout my years of research, you know. I interviewed hundreds of people um, for the mountain things and so many people through Dust Child and their stories were just so incredible and we can learn so much from these stories and, and I felt like if I were to ignore these stories, I would not, you know, I would betray the people who have entrusted their experiences with me. And you know, I wrote, um, I, I, I wrote these books with, with the tears of the people who have cried with me. I mean, in the mountain sing, you will meet Grandma Ziolan, who had to abandon her children one after the next as she ran away from the people who tried to kill her. And this is what happened to a grandma of my friend. There are just so many real life stories in this book. And for anyone who reads it, I hope they understand, you know, um, my willingness to bring forward the horrors of wars and armed conflicts to highlight the fact that we humans love, need to love humans more. You know, when I was six years old, I remember I was standing on my village road. I was looking at the bomb craters around me, at the people who lost their arms and legs and family members. And I told myself as a little girl, the human race would not be so stupid as to wage another war. And I cannot, I cannot, believe myself that Ukraine is happening and we are so powerless against it. You know, we cannot do anything. And there are people in Ukraine now dying, suffering, you know, um, with this terrible war and we don't know when it will end, right? And so um, sometimes I lose hope and I think it's literature that gives me hope, you know? When I write and I, at least I think I have the power because like I, I can try to, to put forward my messages. But, but I mean, being a writer, being a Vietnamese writer is very difficult. Um, I, I, I wish, you know, sometimes I wish I had all the nationalities so I didn't have to worry. Um, but to confess with you, um, you know, like 
when my agent sold the, the manuscript of the mountain thing, I, um, I had two years to edit, and every day I thought I should cut a part out to protect myself and my family. And in the end, I decided not to because I wanted to honor the wish of Hương. If I were a writer, I would not bend my pen to please the eyes and ears of those in power. Hmm. Yeah, it's very gutsy, I think. Um. Can, I, can I just say something mm, on course, the yeah. censorship? Um, I, mean, I had um, some brush with it, I guess, when I, um, I went to Hanoi um, to do a, a writing residency there. Uh, and I stayed um, with this really um, amazing people who ran a, an English language bookstore there. Um, and at some point during my stay, um, the owner of the bookstore sort of took me aside and said, oh, um, we've had a visit from someone. And, and they just made it clear that, you know, um, they're watching. And, um, and you know, the, the, the owner of the bookstore said, look, you know, you, you've got this Australian passport. You'll go home after this and you'll be fine. The worst thing that could happen to you is maybe they kick you out. But, you know, we're still here. Um, and that was really, um, it was a, thankfully, you know, that was very early on in, I guess, in the process. And uh, uh, hopefully the link now is sort of so distant that there's not that connection. Um, that connection wouldn't be made. But yeah, there's it that sort of sense of the unfairness or the unevenness of, um, of, of the way that that sort of power operates is, you know, because I have this damn passport, you know, I can, I can do things and say things and think things that, um, uh, that yeah, I found that, that, that kind of realising that, that sense of privilege. Um, the other thing, though, I guess, that came out of my trip to Hanoi was meeting the side of my family, my, so my grandfather's um, brothers and sisters who um, not only stayed in Vietnam, were actually, you know, kind of active in the communist movement. Um, you know, one of my great uncles was this um, quite relatively well-known voice on at a communist radio in Hanoi, um, and I mean, meeting them and, and speaking to them about my grandfather and you know that the simplicity of the narrative that I thought I was telling kind of just completely fell away. You know, I kind of had and that, this was when I still thought I was writing the memoir or the non-fiction project about this grandfather who was a bit of a martyr or a hero. And then speaking to his brothers and sisters who'd been on the other side of the conflict, and you know they spoke really movingly about him, but they also weren't apologising for the side that they took in the war. Um, and then, so that was one level of complexity. And the next level was them meeting their children, and then particularly their grandchildren. So my, you know, sort of I called them my cousins, um, who didn't really think about the war at all. You know, they were interested in Korea and K-pop. Um, Thai soapies, like really huge, you know. Um, but they, they didn't think about America, they didn't think about the war, they really didn't think about Australia. Um, and that was sort of interesting for me, I think, also realising in some ways the insignificance of the past for some people, or not the insignificance, but also there's just a whole other um, generation doing something very different and not being caught in that past in the same way um, that was both 
you know, I, I found that both confronting, liberating, sad, you know, but it was a complicated thing and that, that's one of the reasons why the simplicity of the, the narrative I thought I was telling fell away, yeah. Yeah, and there's lots of things I could say to what you just raised, but yes, I would agree that because I spent a lot of time in Vietnam over the years too, since I since my late twenties, and when I'm in Vietnam, it's actually pretty rare that people want to talk about the war unless they're old enough to have remembered it. But no young people ever want to talk about it. I mean, it's quite painful history. Um, but just to say, but I think there was another interesting thing in your book too, which actually is paralleled in the Mountain Sing, is about the schisms that happened in families when one side. With, you know, like with brothers, for example, one became communist, the other one joined the other side of the war. And I, I think that's a very painful history that, I mean, it's, it's not something I recognise my family, but I do know friends who have this kind of story as well. Like lots of families talk about, I mean, it's the same, it might be like you see in America, like, you know, half the family support Trump, the other half don't. It's a bit like that. Um, but then those painful splits can have reverberations for, you know, the generations afterwards as well. Um, there's so much to say um, in what you've both raised. I mean, but I think though that Oh, actually, the other thing I want to say before I forget, um, the other, there's a bit in your book, Andre, where, um, you know, you write here, and I, and I just pull the quote out, the absence of the famine in writing, um, you know, so you wrote, imagining the famine proved more difficult even than imagining Jiwa. At least for the latter, I had a model in Manus, however imperfect the transposition, but famine, that seemed biblical to me and just as unreal. And while there are countless prison books, I struggled to think of famine books. Um, and I don't know if you wrote that before you had read The Mountain Sing, but for me, reading The Mountain Sing, that was the first that I'd had heard of the famine as well and the land reforms. And, and as someone who had grown up, you know, his family had been from South Vietnam, I didn't, I guess it's only taken me some time to realise how opaque the northern history was. And I was so angered reading your book about just how badly people in the north suffered through the war as well. So I think you did a really good job of kind of humanising that, even for you know, someone like me, he's, you know, his life, like Andre, our lives have been profoundly shaped by this war that hangs over us, even though people our age in Vietnam seem to be, you know, kind of moving much more lightly through the world. Um, but then, yeah, but the famine, it is incredible to think that there are just these huge chunks of Vietnamese history, which is so little written about, and that you've now written about it in the Mountain Sing. Like, I think that's so important. And I think the writing of these kinds of truths, that's political in itself, like, no, let alone the censorship and all of that, but even just writing what actually happened is like really, really profoundly important. Hi. Can each of you share a little bit of a funny story about one of your relatives? Sure. Um, I can. <laughs> I, so that, um, I mean, the, thanks for that question. Because, I, yeah, I, I feel like I, I do these events and sometimes like, you get into a certain mood, but um, there are hopefully some moments of lightness in the novel as well. And one of them... Um, it was, which was taken from life. So the same great uncle who was this sort of propagandist for the, the Communist Party, um, I went and visited his house and he also keeps a peacock um, on, on the roof. And so <laughs> I just have this like really strong memory of being taken upstairs by this man who I'm trying to get to know and trying to ask him these serious questions about my grandfather. And all he wanted to show me was how um, to imitate a peahen in order to get the peacock to spread its tail. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, no, thank you for the point. I mean, yeah, it is, yeah it's, it's hard to be lighthearted sometimes thinking about these kind of heavy topics. Um, I don't know that I can answer that <laughs> with quite a funny story, but I guess I think of someone like my father who is like, 
kind of like the quintessential Southern Vietnamese refugee, like, you know, was in the army and then was in a re-education camp for many years um, and then had organised a boat and then that's how we came to Australia, you know, it's all of that. Um, but he's a real larger-than-life character as well. And I guess one thing, despite the difficulties of growing up in a very complicated, dysfunctional family, I've always kind of appreciated that my parents do seem to laugh with each other. There are, we do, and I do have lots of fond memories of us laughing together, um, if this, you know, so which is kind of... Yeah, it's funny that, that all these things can coexist at the same time, that there's a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain, and yeah, there's so much laughter too. I wish I could think of a good joke at the top of my head of something funny, but my dad, if anyone's met my dad, he's just hilarious. He's just like a really, um, you know, yeah, bigger than, larger than life character. So yeah, I guess, that's, I guess that's my answer to your question. Hello, Kimai. I was just wondering if you could tell me exactly why it is easier for you to write these particular stories in English rather than Vietnamese. Um, thank you so much for being here for your question. Um, actually, you know, I mean, in the truest sense, it could have been easier for me to write in Vietnamese because I grew up with the language. But I think uh, in terms of, you know, freedom of expression, it's easier for me to write in English because, like, I don't have to be concerned about censorship. And second of all, when you write about trauma, for example, the um, Sheila mentioned about the famine uh, in Vietnam in 1945 where, you know, two million Vietnamese people died, including three of my family members. So, you know, to write about that vividly is so difficult. And I feel like if I write in English, I'm a bit, you know, distant from it. So, uh, so it's less painful. So if, uh, you know, but sometimes when there were certain scenes in the book, intimate scenes, you know, very Vietnamese scenes, I had to open first with writing a little bit in Vietnamese to get into the mood before I switched to English. So I do write in both languages. Uh, when I'm really homesick, for example, during the Vietnamese New Year Tết, I have to write in Vietnamese. <laughs> because, it, it, you know, sometimes when you're away from home, a, a piece of yourself in, is missing. For me, writing helps heal me. So whether to write English about Vietnam or write in Vietnamese, it helps heal me. I was gonna, is that why you, you include the proverbs in your, yes. your books? Yeah. I include a lot of proverbs, you know, uh, even though in these, these are English books, but I include a lot of um, Vietnamese language proverbs, poetry into the book as well to bring the c culture forward. Are your books published in Vietnam? And what is the literature and writing scene in Vietnam these days? Um, yeah, so my, both of my books are available uh, in bookshops in Vietnam. They have not been translated. Actually, there are publishers who wanted to publish The Mountains. This book has been translated into so many languages. So I got multiple offers from publisher, but so I chose one publisher whom I already worked with, and they gave me a list of things that I would need to cut out. So then I said, no. Uh, but they are available in, um, in English in Vietnam. And Andre, your book's not only just published, so I don't know, but I don't know what the likelihood of it being translated into Vietnamese would be. Um, it would be difficult, I think. Uh, well, I mean, I think it would be impossible politically. Uh, in terms of the writing scene, at least when I was there during the writing residency, I guess there were two levels to it. There was the official government publisher that I was sort of seconded to and they were doing um, this kind of very political memory work which was um, like can we write a history of the war in which every 
uh, victory was a, you know, a, a triumph of Ho Chi Minh thought. You know, so it was like very didactic um, political memory work. Um, and then the other part of the scene was uh, that I, at least that I came across, was uh, you know young young poets, young writers, who again you know, were not at all writing about the war, and um, but they were facing censorship of a very different kind because they were often you know queer writers or writers being transgressive in other ways, and so they were pushing other kinds of boundaries. Um, but they were wonderful and vibrant, and I think um, you know I'm very interested in translation the other way. Like, can we? translate some of these um, these younger generation of Vietnamese writers. Yeah, no, and I did um, a few years ago for Kill Your Darlings, it's in a literary journal here, there was a Vietnam showcase if you look it up, um, and I was one of the editors for that, and we got some work from Vietnam, and it's, it's really fascinating, the short stories that came out of it, it was just such a different way of thinking, I think, and then it got translated into English, and yeah, and uh, yeah, I can't even describe it, but it's, it's nothing like I've ever read in Australia, I think, the, the way of, ways of thinking. And there are other anthologies that are around, too, that capture some of those, um, the new generation writers. Um, so I think we're basically out of time, but um, what I want to um, get Wemai to do is like, read a poem, because she's a poet, among other things as well, she's incredibly talented. Oh, thank you so much. Would you like to hear a poem in Vietnamese? Yes. <laughs> This poem is for my mom, and I feel that she's here with us today. Giang bếp của mẹ Qua đôi mắt tuổi thơ tôi nhìn mẹ tôi tất tả trong gian bếp được dựng lên bằng rơm và bùng quánh. Mẹ nhấc đũa lên quấy nắng vào nồi cơm đang sôi. Vạt áo mẹ đẫm hương thơm của mùa gạt mới tay mẹ mớm rơm khô cho ngọn lửa đói bập bùng. Tôi muốn đến cạnh bên và giúp mẹ, nhưng đứa trẻ trong tôi kéo tôi chui vào góc bếp tối thẳm. Từ nơi đó tôi nhìn gương mặt mẹ dày cho vẻ đẹp cách bừng lên trong gian khổ và cách hát cho cơm sôi bằng đôi tay rám nắng của người. Ngày hôm đó trong gian bếp của tuổi thơ tôi sự hoàn hảo được sắp đặt bằng những chiếc nồi đen tuyền bồ hông và bởi chiếc lưng khom của mẹ mỏng manh trông chân sẽ biến mất nếu tôi khóc hay kêu lên My mother's rise. Through the eyes of my childhood, I watched my mother who labored in a kitchen built from straw and mud. She lifted a pair of chopsticks and twirled sunlight into a pot of boiling rice. The perfume of a new harvest soaked her want shirt as she bent and fed rice straw to the hungry flames. I wanted to come and help, but the child in me pulled myself into a dark corner where I could watch my mother's face teach beauty how to glow in hardship and how to sing the rice to cook with her sun-backed hands. That day in our kitchen, I saw how perfection was arranged by soot blackened pans and pots and by the bent back of my mother, so thin she would disappear if I wept or cried out.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.